hello, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. This is Stuart Haynes, the host of the iFormerX podcast. And about a year ago, we reviewed and discussed the DAPA-HF study, which evaluated the benefits of the sodium glucose transporter 2, or SGLT2 inhibitor, dapagliflozin in patients with reduced ejection fraction heart failure even in patients without diabetes. And if you are not familiar with a DAPA-HF study, I strongly encourage you to read the original study and the iFormerX commentary, of course. The data regarding the use of the SGLT2 inhibitors to prevent cardiovascular events and to treat heart failure are quite compelling. But can they also slow the progression of renal complications in patients with chronic kidney disease? Well, I was excited to see the much-anticipated DAPA CKD study published in the New England Journal of Medicine a few weeks ago, and I knew just the right people I wanted to review this study for iFormerX, and that's Dr. Jennifer Clements and Dr. Stephanie Nigro. Jennifer and Stephanie are no strangers to iFormerX. They are members of the iFormerX editorial board and have been frequent contributors over the years. Dr. Clements is clinical pharmacy specialist in diabetes transitions at Spartanburg Regional Health Care System in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And Dr. Nigro is associate professor of pharmacy practice at the University of Connecticut. Stephanie, Jennifer, it's great to welcome you back on the iFormerX podcast. Thanks for the invitation, Stuart. Thank you for having us back. So before we get started, per usual, I'd like to get your thoughts on a patient case, a a case I think that is not unlike what many of our listeners encounter in their practices. I want you to imagine you're seeing KT, a 61-year-old African-American female in the primary care clinic today. The patient has a longstanding history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, and she's morbidly obese. She also has osteoarthritis in her knees. She recently was diagnosed with chronic kidney disease, and her primary care physician referred her to you to make certain, quote, we are doing everything we can to protect her kidneys. According to her medical record, KT has been prescribed lisinopril 20 milligrams twice daily, rosuvastatin 20 milligrams daily, metformin 1,000 twice daily, and insulin glargine 20 units at bedtime. And in addition, over the counter, she takes aspirin 81 milligrams and naproxen sodium for arthritis pain. Uh, She currently weighs 264 pounds, BMI of 40.9. Blood pressure today is 138 over 76. And her most recent labs, which were drawn yesterday, include a fasting glucose of 87 and A1C of 6.7%. Uh, serum creatinine of 1.7 milligrams per deciliter and an estimated GFR of 37, serum potassium of 4.7, LDL cholesterol of 56, HDL cholesterol of 48, triglycerides of 107. In addition, the patient had a timed urine protein test performed and the albumin to creatinine ratio was 350. So, Stephanie, before we talk about the study that you reviewed in your iFormerX commentary, I'm wondering what's going through your mind in this case. Uh, What are some of the key questions you'd ask this patient during the encounter? And what additional labs, if any, might you want to obtain? And is there any additional treatment options you'd be considering at this point? 
So, Stuart, I would agree that KT really does mirror many of the patients that are encountered in clinical practice. And I think this case excites me because there are many opportunities for the pharmacist to intervene here. And if we're going to utilize the PPCP process, I would first want to collect some additional information from KT. For example, does she smoke? How often is she using her naproxen and at what dose? I'd also want to collect, if possible, her A1C blood pressure and serum creatinine trends. And we know how important it is to not evaluate labs in isolation. So seeing her patterns would provide additional insight for care planning. It's really important to know if KT's renal function is stable or if it's consistently fluctuating, as this information would help our assessment of how we can manage her current metformin dose since her EGFR is approaching the cutoff for continued use. At minimum, she needs a dose reduction. And also, Stuart, if we're thinking about the potential use of SGLT2 inhibitors for KT, ensuring that her renal function is stable would help us feel more comfortable recommending its use since we know that there have been reports of acute kidney injury and volume depletion upon initiation of these drugs. I'd also want to collect a bit more information about her lifestyle habits, including a general understanding of her dietary choices, notably her sodium and protein intake and see if she is engaging in any physical activity given her knee limitations and osteoarthritis. I'd also want to know her insurance provider and learn if she's burdened by any of the costs of her current medications in case we want to add anything in the future. From a CKD management perspective, I'm really happy to see that she's on lisinopril because she has albuminuria, but further management is needed to help delay renal progression. And when we think of good CKD management, we need to consider first optimizing her glycemic control, which looks really good for a KT at this point, and also attaining and maintaining a blood pressure goal of less than 130 over 80, if we can do that safely. And again, KT is really close to this goal, but there is some room for improvement. KT should be counseled to avoid smoking if she does, and avoid nephrotoxic drugs like her naproxen, for example. And finally, since chronic kidney disease and cardiovascular disease are closely linked, I'm happy to see her lipid panel is excellent and that she's on a high-intensity statin. But at this point, Stuart, I would likely recommend a reevaluation and discontinuation of her aspirin based on the findings of the ASCEND study, since her aspirin appears to be used for primary prevention. Uh, so, Jennifer, in the commentary you wrote for iFormerX, you reviewed the study entitled Dapagliflozin in Patients with Chronic Kidney Disease, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, in late September 2020. And while I think everyone in our audience should read the paper for themselves, we provide a link to the paper on our iFormerX website. But can you give us a brief synopsis of the study methods and results? The DAPA-CKD trial was an international, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial conducted to assess the efficacy and safety of dapagliflozin 10 milligrams orally once daily among participants with chronic kidney disease with or without type 2 diabetes. To elaborate on chronic kidney disease, participants had macroalbuminuria and stage 2 through 4 kidney disease. Following one-to-one -one randomization, each group received stable doses of either an ACE inhibitor or ARB for at least four weeks. The primary outcome was a composite endpoint of a time-to-event analysis 
and included decline of GFR by 50% in stage kidney disease and renal or cardiovascular death. There was a secondary composite outcome, and this included the primary outcome with cardiovascular death or hospitalization from heart failure. When looking at baseline characteristics, both groups were similar in terms of age, females, race, GFR, as far as cardiovascular disease, and standard of care. The GFR mean was about 43, and a majority of these participants could be classified as stage 3B. In addition, 37% of these participants had cardiovascular disease, and 98% did receive the ACE inhibitor or ARB. Now, after three years, dapagliflozin reduced the primary composite outcome by 39%, with a benefit shown in individual outcomes of decline in GFR by 50%, end-stage kidney disease, and long-term dialysis. As seen in other trials with dapagliflozin, there was a reduction of 29% in the composite of cardiovascular endpoint of cardiovascular death or hospitalization from heart failure. Now, discontinuation was low and similar between both groups, but it's important to look at some safety outcomes. Volume depletion was statistically higher with dabagliflozin than placebo. Even though there was no statistically significant finding, placebo group did have a higher percentage of participants experiencing a renal-related adverse event than compared to dapagliflozin. And lastly, there was no cases of euglycemic ketoacidosis among those that received dapagliflozin. So, Stephanie, every study has strengths and weaknesses and potential limitations. I, I think many clinicians would consider this study, along with a DAPA-HF study, a, a landmark trial. Do you agree? Is this a landmark study? Do you have any concerns about the design and conduct of the study? And can the results of this study be generalized to most patients with chronic kidney disease, including those who do not have diabetes? Or do you think dapagliflozin should only be used in selected groups of patients? I would agree with you, Stuart. I think this is indeed a landmark study. You know, for the first time in about 20 years, we have a drug and, and really a whole drug class potentially that can be used in a patient population where there is currently a large unmet need. Not only was the efficacy of dapagliflozin impressive, but it was proven to be safe as well. And when we look specifically at the patients with diabetes in this study, there were virtually no cases of hypoglycemia or diabetic ketoacidosis, which has historically limited the use of SGLT2 inhibitors in those with diabetes. And the fact that these drugs have benefit in earlier stages of CKD, like stage two, further adds to their potential role and intrigue, in my opinion. So yes, I, I definitely think that this study has the potential to change practice. Regarding your questions about the study design itself, I believe it was strong in its methodology and included a diverse group of patients with various stages of CKD from mild to more advanced cases. But I would have liked to see more Black patients enrolled since we know that CKD does progress to end-stage renal disease more quickly in this patient population. Also, since the study was halted after three years, there is some concern that the benefits may have been overestimated, while some of the secondary outcomes may have been underpowered. 
And about a third of the patients enrolled in DAPA-CKD did not have diabetes. So I definitely think the findings can be generalized to those with and without diabetes. But what we don't know, Stuart, is if these results would be reproducible in patients not already on pre-existing RAS therapy or those without macroalbuminuria. So we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. Well, Jennifer, let's go back to our case. Recall that KT has been recently diagnosed with CKD. Do you think dapagliflozin would be a good option in this case? And if so, given that the patient's glycemic control is already pretty good, what changes in her anti-diabetic regimen would you make? And lastly, do you think empagliflozin or canagliflozin would be reasonable alternatives if dapagliflozin was not available on the patient's health plan formulary? These are all great questions. So first, yes, I think KT is a candidate for dapagliflozin 10 milligrams orally once daily. If we assume that this could be started, I would advise the patient to take this medication in the morning and I would review expected adverse events along with preventative measures before she leaves the clinic. I would also want to schedule the patient for appropriate follow-up on renal function in about one month, as it will be important to monitor her renal function due to the expected initial dip with an SGLT2 inhibitor. It will also be important to monitor the patient's blood pressure and weight along with her general tolerance with dapagliflozin. So I mention this because it is important, I think, to have an appropriate protocol for monitoring with the SGLT2 inhibitors. To answer some additional questions, in terms of medications for diabetes, metformin needs to be adjusted to 500 milligrams orally twice daily due to GFR. I would not make any further changes with insulin glargine at this time until I can determine the trend with self-monitored glucose readings. Now, to answer your last question, if dapagliflozin is not covered by the patient's insurance, I think canagliflozin 100 milligrams orally once daily could be another option based on evidence from the Credence trial. In the Credence trial, Canagliflozin reduced the risk of end-stage renal disease, doubling of serum creatinine, and renal cardiovascular death as a composite endpoint by 30% among those with type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease. I would suspect that empagliflozin will have positive outcomes when the IMPA kidney trial is completed and reported in the upcoming years. However, it may be challenging to convince providers to write a prescription for empagliflozin if the full report of the trial is not available compared to the published information on the Credence trial with canagliflozin and DAPA-CKD with dapagliflozin. Well, Jennifer, Stephanie, I want to thank you both for joining me today to discuss the treatment of chronic kidney disease and the potential role of the SGLT2 inhibitors to limit the progression of kidney disease in patients with diabetes and patients who don't have diabetes. It's clear from your comments that you believe that the SGLT2 inhibitors are a very important new class of medications with several benefits. Not only can they reduce the risk of cardiovascular events, 
the development of heart failure and reduce the risk of heart failure exacerbations, but they also appear to have a very significant benefit in terms of renal outcomes. Well, tell us what you think. Should an SGLT2 inhibitor become a routine part of practice that is considered in most, if not all, patients, as long as there's no contraindications, who have chronic kidney disease, regardless of whether they have diabetes or not? And if so, when should it be added? Well, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the site. You can become a member of iFormerX. It's free, so sign up today. By the way, if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist and want to earn recertification and continuing education credit for this program, you can. We've partnered with the American Pharmacists Association to offer iFormerX content as part of their board recertification program. Click on the link posted on the bottom of the iFormerX commentary on our website to learn more. Lastly, I want to extend a very special acknowledgement to Mary Beth Siepel, Eric Gunderson, and Amanda Applegate for putting together and maintaining the COVID-19 resource page on the iFormerX website. This has been a rapidly changing area of practice, and Mary Beth, Eric, and Amanda have made regular updates to the webpage over the past year to keep us all informed about the latest evidence. So iFormerX is made possible by the active engagement of pharmacists from around the globe. So thank you to Mary Beth, Eric, Amanda for being active and engaged iFormerX members. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Music